Well, welcome everyone. We're so, so thrilled that you're at our church um, this morning. We are continuing our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And here to read our passage for this morning is Jenny. Our reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to start this morning with a would you rather question. Have you ever played that game before? We play it in young adults sometimes. You know, we'll say things like, um, would you rather spend one hour visiting the past or the future? Would you rather fight to the death 500 lobsters or one two-story tall Elmo doll, right? We, we deal with the big issues in the young adults at Grace Toronto. Okay, my would you rather question for this congregation is a little bit different. As you seek to walk the Christian life, would you rather, option one, you exchange the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit for the physical presence of Jesus Christ, okay? So Jesus becomes physically accessible to you. He mentors you. He becomes like your pastor, your discipler, your life coach. You can go to work with Jesus. You can take him to class. You can invite him over for dinner, do the chores together. If you have questions about the Bible, there's Jesus and you can ask him. If you have questions about life, you know, who should I date? What should I do for work? You can ask him. You have Jesus physically accessible to you, but in exchange, you've given up the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's option one. Option two, Life as you are right now, okay? So you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You come to church, you try to read the Bible, you try to pray, try to live a life that honors God. Life as you are right now. Which would you choose? Well, perhaps there's some of you in this room who, like me, feel really tempted to try option one. You know, we've been living this Christian life and it's hard. There's things about the Bible we don't understand, and we would love to have Jesus here just to talk to him. Maybe there's some sin that we're struggling to overcome, and we would love to have Jesus praying for us right here, teaching us to pray, and so on. Maybe it would be worth exchanging the indwelling presence of the Spirit, just to be able to talk to Jesus and spend time with him face to face. However, in the text that Jenny read for us this morning— the Apostle Paul makes it quite clear that the only way we can walk this Christian life is if we are filled with the Spirit. And so for those of us who, you know, like me, are tempted by option one, could there be that there's something about this Christian experience that we've missed out on or that we've forgotten? I know that some folks like to write down notes while they're listening to sermons, and so if that's you, this is a one-point sermon. 
doesn't necessarily mean it'll be short. <laughs> but there's one point, and that point is this. You must be filled with the Spirit to walk this Christian life. You must be filled with the Spirit to walk this Christian life. And we are going to explore what does this mean to be filled with the Spirit this morning. So let's begin by looking together at verses 15 to 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This passage comes on the end of a long section in the letter of Ephesians where Paul is unpacking this idea of the new life in Christ, the new humanity that's been ushered in by Jesus Christ. And if you've been visiting Grace Toronto, you've been coming for the past couple of weeks, you know we've been walking systematically through this section of the letter. It starts in chapter 4, verse 17, and it runs all the way through the end of our section today, chapter 5, verse 21. And the basic thrust of this section, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the life of the individual Christian should be marked by sacrificial love. The life of the church as a community should be marked by a culture of sacrificial love. Because that's the new humanity that Jesus ushered in for us. And as Paul unpacks this idea of, of sacrificial love, he gives a series of negative commandments. Don't do these things. And he gives a series of positive commandments. Instead, these are the things you ought to do. So just to give you a sampling of some of the things we've covered over the past few weeks. Um, we have, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up. That was in chapter 4, verse 29. We have, um, let all bitterness and wrath, slander, and clamor be put away from you along with all malice. That was chapter 4, verse 31. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That was chapter 4, verse 32. And so on and so forth for over a chapter and a half. And at the end of this lengthy section describing the new life in Christ, where the Apostle Paul says, don't do this, instead do this. Do this, not that. Don't do that. Instead, do this. At the end of that long section, the apostle offers a summary statement that we have in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul's saying that just in the same way we take care of our physical appearance, right? We go to stores and buy clothes that we think will look nice on us. We take care of our personal grooming. We might buy cologne or go to hairdressers, buy glasses that frame our face just so. Just as we are careful about our physical appearance. Also, this is ironic. I spilled a bunch of like my breakfast on myself, but and I was upset about it because I want to care for my physical appearance. Just as we take care of our physical appearance, even more so, we're to take care of our inward life. We're to take care of our walk, our lifestyle. The image that comes to my mind is that of a, a daughter and her father walking through deep snow. Okay, this is a very Canadian image. Um, so as, as the daughter is walking behind her father, she's careful to place her feet in the footsteps 
left by the boots of her father. She's careful how she walks. Now, this isn't to say that being careful how you walk is all just about avoiding sin, you know, avoiding putting a toe out of line. It's about so much more than that. It's about seizing every opportunity to do good. It's about advancing justice, creating beauty, using your God-given gifts to make this world a better place. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Or to use the other words that Paul uses here, make the best use of the time. Now, perhaps if you're like me, you come to the end of Ephesians 4:17 to 5:21, and you feel discouraged. You should feel discouraged if you reread this section. Because have I really put away all bitterness, all malice, all slander and clamor? Have I put away completely all corrupting talk from my mouth? Have I mastered the art of forgiveness? Have you? The apostle wants to communicate to us that the Christian life is not just a difficult path to walk. It is impossible. It's not just difficult. The Christian life is impossible. And so what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just sort of white-knuckle it, just try our best to live lives of holiness and to bless the communities around us? Are we just supposed to throw in the towel and say, if it's impossible, why should I even try? The key is in verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a um, British pastor and theologian named John Stott, who in his commentary on Ephesians 5, on this section, he said, there is no greater secret to holiness than the indwelling of the one whose name and nature are holy. There is no greater secret to holiness than the indwelling of the one whose name and nature are holy. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to think back on the would-you-rather question that we began with today. Did you know that Jesus actually addressed that question himself? You know, whether it's better to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit versus the physical presence of Jesus? He actually answered that would-you-rather question. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying in John 16, it is better to have the indwelling Holy Spirit rather than having face-to-face interactions with Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask, how could that possibly be true? And in response, I'd like to ask a second, would you rather question? (laughs) Okay, let's imagine for a moment that you really like basketball, okay? Uh, You like to watch it. Could be NBA, could be NCAA. That's my wife prefers. She says it's a purer game. I wouldn't know. Um, you You like to watch basketball. You also like to play basketball, and you decide you would like to improve your game, okay? So I'm gonna give you two options here. Option one, I hire LeBron James, Uh, apparently one of the greatest basketball players of all time. I hire LeBron James to become your personal coach, 
okay? He's going to spend all day, every day with you on the court, running drills, demonstrating plays, giving you tailored feedback to the way that you're playing the game. Off the court, he's going to work with you. He's going to develop a nutrition plan. He's going to develop an exercise plan. He's even going to work with you on sport psychology. And do you know what I bet? I bet at the end of the year, you'd be a pretty good basketball player. But I also bet that uh, for almost every single person in this room, you still wouldn't be in the NBA. I am sorry. <laughs> That's option one. Option two. The spirit of LeBron James <laughs> comes in and dwells you, okay? I, I know it's ridiculous, but it's going to communicate a point. The spirit of LeBron James indwells you. You get his ability to read plays. You get his agility. You get his speed. You get his strength and his ability to jump. And guess what? There's no telling how far you'd go. It's not enough to have Jesus as your coach, because the Christian life is impossible. We need the spirit of Jesus to empower us to walk in his path. And if you need an illustration of this from the Bible, look no further than the disciples, right? The disciples spent every day for three years with Jesus. They went on camping trips with Jesus. Some of you are going camping. They went on camping trips with Jesus, they did ministry with Jesus. They sat under his teaching. They could ask him any question. And we see that the disciples in the Gospels, they show some glimmers of promise. But by and large, they're not very impressive. They often get in fights with one another. They ask foolish questions. They show immense doubt. And in Jesus' greatest hour of need, they all abandon him. And then Pentecost happens, and the disciples receive the Spirit. And even though Jesus is absent, all of a sudden, they are speaking with boldness, wisdom, and love to the religious authorities of their day. They are receiving persecutions. They're not running from them. They're receiving them with joy. And they still make mistakes, but they become leaders with faith that could shake mountains. It's not enough to have Jesus as our coach. We need his spirit indwelling us. And so, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to talk a little bit about who or what exactly are we talking about when we say the Holy Spirit. Because if that's the main point of the sermon, be filled with the spirit, we need to know what it is or who it is that we're talking about. There was a survey conducted some years ago that found over 50% of American evangelicals, now these are American evangelicals, they're not Canadian evangelicals, but I would assume that it's fairly similar. Over 50% of American evangelicals describe the Holy Spirit as a, a force or an energy. Is that what the Holy Spirit is or who he is? Is the Holy Spirit a ghost you know, think Casper, the friendly ghost. We, uh, my, um, I was singing when my daughter was two or three. I was singing the doxology with her. And we got to the end. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. She went, ghost? You know, what is this faith you've brought me into? Is the Holy Spirit a ghost? Is the Holy Spirit equal to Jesus? Lesser than Jesus? 
You know, we have all these questions about who or, or what we're talking about. So, Bible nerds and those of you who like to take notes, get ready. I have a bunch of passages I'm going to shoot at you in rapid fire succession here, okay? Firstly, the scriptures are quite clear in teaching us that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God, okay? You can see this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit is eternal. That's an attribute only of God. We see Psalm 139, verse 7, that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, an attribute of God. We see in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10 and 11, that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He knows all things. Again, an attribute only of deity. In uh, Job 33, 4 and Genesis 1, verse 3, the Holy Spirit is described as active in creation. All attributes of deity. In addition to this, we have 2 Peter 1, verse 21. The Holy Spirit is the author of divine prophecies. And in Acts 5, verse 3 to 4, the early church, when they're speaking to members of their congregation, they say, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not tried to deceive human beings, but God. The early church equated the Spirit with God. And in John 14, verse 16, Jesus says that another counselor will come. So he's equating the Spirit with himself. So the witness of Scripture is clear. The Holy Spirit is God. Do you view him that way? Do you have that posture towards him? Do you believe in your heart that he has the same power and could do the same things? as the Son and the Father. Now, we're not going to stop there. The Holy Spirit is also a person, just as Jesus is a person, just as the Father has personhood. And so, if you want a bit of a, a litmus test of, of your own understanding here, how many times in a Bible study might you have referred to the Holy Spirit as an it, right? We would not do that with persons with whom we were interacting, just interesting to think about. So here's another few uh, passages for you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. He has a will. Um, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. He communicates this will. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Just a couple um, uh, verses before our text today. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. You can't grieve gravity. You can't grieve a force. You can only grieve persons. These are all attributes of personhood. And additionally, I'm not going to give references for these. There's way too many. But the Holy Spirit is the subject of many verbs which demand personhood in the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit searches, teaches, knows, dwells, um, accomplishes, gives life, cries out, bears witness, and so on and so forth. And this is, this is actually an important point, because if we conceive of the Holy Spirit as just some impersonal energy or, or force, like from Star Wars, we're not going to relate to him rightly, right? Because you can't have a personal relationship with a force. In fact, the types of relationship we have with forces are typically ones of control, trying to manage their effects on our lives and perhaps even to wield them to our own benefit. So this is important. The Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit is God. Um, in the Council of Nicaea, in 381 AD, um, they produced the Nicene Creed, which is one of the creeds that our church and all Christian churches subscribe to. And in this creed, they describe the Holy Spirit as this. He is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and later it was edited to include, and the Son, 
who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and who spake by the prophets. Throughout the scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit is the active presence of God. We see that in Genesis 1, it was the Spirit who fluttered over the darkness of the deep in creation. We see during the Exodus, it was God's Spirit who led the people in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It was God's Spirit who came to the prophet Elijah in the great earthquake, the rushing wind, the fire, and the gentle whisper. It was God's Spirit who raised Christ from the dead and is that same Spirit who dwells in you this morning. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with this Holy Spirit. Now, why would Paul connect those two things in our passage? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a, um, another British preacher who was formerly a medical doctor, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he had an interesting analysis of this section where he said, you know, at, speaking as a doctor, he said, alcohol is a depressant. And in particular, it depresses the higher functions of the brain, your intellect, your reason, your will, your self-control, your emotions. And by contrast, the Holy Spirit is a stimulant, if he might be described in that way. And he stimulates your will, your reason, your emotions, your intellect, and so on. You see, the issue here is coming under the influence. That's, that's the similarity between these two things. It's not that being filled with the Spirit makes a person act as if they're drunk. Surely that's not what it is, because we know from Galatians 5 that the last of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And that is certainly not a word that we would use to describe someone who's under extreme intoxication. The issue is influence. Come under the influence of either the depressant or a stimulant. And what's interesting is if, is if you observe, and we can see this very sadly on the streets of Toronto, if you observe people who are ravaged by alcoholism, ravaged by alcoholism and oppressed by it, you'll see that they are dehumanized by that experience. They're dehumanized as those things, those higher levels of the brain, the things that make them most human are suppressed. And the results are tragic. It's dehumanizing. Versus the spirit who stimulates those highest parts of us, he makes us more human. He makes us more into the image of Christ, the true human. And so Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, we might then ask the question. I'm going to pause. We're not going to get to my question yet. Um, commentaries tell me that there's actually three interesting things about uh, Paul's verbiage here when he says, be filled with the Spirit. So, um, Bible weenies, this is for you. And for the rest of you who aren't into grammar, you know, this is not red meat for you. It will be over mercifully quick and hopefully beneficial. So firstly, be filled with the Spirit. It is a passive verb, okay? There's nothing you need to do. There's no formula you need to memorize. It, it may have instead have been, been rendered this way. Um, let yourself be filled by the Spirit. It's a passive verb. It's also in the present tense. It's not a one-time event. It's not be filled and then you're done. It's ongoing. So they could have translated this passage, 
Continue to be filled. Go on being filled with the Spirit. And lastly, this verb is a command. It's a command for me and for every person in this room. Be filled with the Spirit. So then the question comes, how can we obey that command? How can we obey the command to allow ourselves to be filled in an ongoing way with the Holy Spirit? Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you're welcome to turn to Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians chapter 3, it's, it's interesting. It really parallels the passage that we've been looking at this morning. Paul uses a lot of the same language. He employs a lot of the same images. And when he gets to the point where in Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Spirit, he says something very different. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And so the Apostle Paul is connecting the word of Christ with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't separate those things. The apostle is saying, take the word of Christ into you. Swallow it whole. Take it into your life. And we will experience the filling of the Spirit. There's an image that has sort of helped me um, understand this concept. And if you imagine your life as a big house with a number of different rooms, okay? And each room in that house represents a different area of your life. So there's a room that represents your vocation or your studies, There's a room that represents how you treat your body, exercise, diet, and so on. There's a room that represents romantic relationships. There's a room that represents how you spend your money, and on and on. Every area of your life covered by a room. Is the Word of God, Jesus Christ, is He invited into each and every one of those rooms? Or are there any rooms that you have locked away just for yourself? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Open up the rooms of your life. Let him come in. Let him rearrange the furniture. Be filled with the Spirit. And so how can we let this word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, this brings us to the last few verses in our text for this morning, because I think it's really interesting. So uh, the Apostle Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the command. And then as a result of being filled with the Spirit, Paul says there are four things that are going to outflow from Spirit-filled Christians. Four outcomes of being filled in the Spirit. But what I think is interesting about these is is they're almost um, self-perpetuating in that these outcomes of being filled in the Spirit also contribute to having the Word of Christ dwell in us, which contributes to being filled with the Spirit. So they're they're sort of self-fulfilling in that sense. Let's take a look at each of them this morning. Firstly, verse, uh, back in Ephesians 5, verse 19, in the first half of that verse. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The spirit-filled Christian is one who seeks out and participates in Christian fellowship. Fellowship with other believers. And when they enter that fellowship, they encourage one another with scripture, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And what I think is interesting about this passage is that sometimes we think that when we sing a worship song or recite a psalm, it needs to be directed only to God, directly to God. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, in fact, that these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs can be directed 
to others in the congregation to encourage them. If you want an example of that, you can look at Psalm 95. It's a back and forth between the congregation. And so spirit-filled Christians will seek out fellowship to participate in it. And I wonder if you're here this morning and you're feeling spiritually dry in this season of life, would you consider seeking out fellowship as a way to get the word into you richly so that you can be filled by the Spirit and continue to participate in that fellowship? Secondly, verse 19, the second half. Singing and making music to the Lord in your heart. Spirit-filled Christians will have a song in their heart for the ears of God alone. And I think for those of us who don't have voices like the worship band, this is a wonderful encouragement. (laughs) A song in our heart for the ears of God alone. It was Martin Luther, the great German reformer, who said that next to the word of God, congregational singing deserves our highest praise. Because Luther knew that there's something about having words put to music that gets the word of Christ deep into us, even more so than a sermon, perhaps. And so if you're here this morning and you're feeling spiritually dry, might you consider the practice of making music in your heart to the Lord? There's a book that my family enjoy. Um, It's called Then Sings My Soul, 150 of the Greatest Hymn Stories Ever Told. And in this book, they have 150 different Christian hymns throughout the history. They have the text of the hymn and the music printed on one page. And on the other page, they have a brief story about the author of the hymn or the circumstances in which it was composed. And also a passage of scripture that the hymn was inspired by. And so if you're looking for a place to start, I would commend that to you. Um, But there's many other ways that we can make music in our hearts to the Lord. Thirdly, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit-filled Christian isn't also filled with grumbling and complaining. The spirit-filled Christian gives thanks to God for all things. Now, we don't want to press Paul's words beyond what they clearly mean. Christians aren't to give thanks to God for evil in this world. We're not to give thanks to God for suffering in this world. But in the midst of darkness, we're to give thanks to God for who he is in the midst of the trials in our own lives. And so are you here this morning and you're feeling spiritually dry? Might you consider implementing these words by going home this afternoon and writing a list of things for which you are thankful, and praying to God, giving thanks for those things. And perhaps if there aren't any circumstances in your life for which you're thankful, could you consider who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and find thanksgiving there. And the last of the four outcomes, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled Christians are filled with the Spirit of Christ, who is meek and humble, who submitted himself to the Father. And so as a consequence, Spirit-filled Christians will submit mutually to one another. And we're going to be looking 
in the next several weeks about how this command and description is played out in our everyday lives. So if you'd like to consider more on that question, I encourage you to keep coming back for the next few weeks as we expand on this idea. And so in conclusion, I mean, Paul observes that the spirit-filled Christian lives in harmony with their neighbor, right? They encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and they submit to one another. And they live in harmony with God, expressing worship to him and offering their thanks to him. And this really shouldn't be a surprise because the first of the fruit of the Spirit is love. So we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, when the Bible says that the outcome of being filled with the Spirit is a deeper love for God and for neighbor. As we said earlier, the Christian life isn't just difficult, it is impossible. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And you are commanded to walk in his footsteps. You can't do that on your own strength, but the good news is you aren't required to. You have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, enabling you to walk in the footsteps of Christ, whether that leads you through green pastures or through the valley of the shadow of death. And so if you're here this morning and you're feeling discouraged, there's sins you can't beat in your life or you just feel run down and ready to throw in the towel, be filled with the Spirit and God will continue to renew and develop those fruit within you. If you're here this morning and you're feeling content, perhaps, dare I say, even complacent, be filled with the Spirit because God has an even greater vision for what's in store for you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your Spirit that you have sent. We thank you for how he enables us to walk the path of Christ. And I pray for each of us in this room that we would experience your filling this week. I pray that we would experience the love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control of your spirit. And that we would experience joy as we walk the path of Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. Do we have time for, we do, uh, do we have time? Chun? Yeah, we do. Oh, Chun, hello. <laughs> Hi. We have time for I have one. Time, sorry. Um, yeah. And if I don't get to your question, you can email me, graham at gracetoronto.ca. I will try to respond to a question, sure. though. Um, so the first question is, in Acts 19, uh, Paul <laughs> finds some disciples and asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they replied, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Right. So it sounds like... Being filled is an ongoing thing, but receiving the Spirit is a one-time thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, people love yeah. this one, eh? Okay. <laughs> For good reason, right? You know, um, it, it's interesting. What, what was it that those disciples, what message had those disciples received in which they had believed? Um, I, there, there is obviously some contention over the passage that was just referenced, but I encourage you to look at a, a good couple of commentaries on it because an, a number of trustworthy commentaries would say that the message that those disciples had received was an incomplete message about the salvific work of Jesus. And so perhaps they were trusting in him as a wise teacher who could, you know, unpack the scriptures for them, but they hadn't received him 
as their savior who had died and raised and conquered death. And so um, it seems to be that they hadn't received the fullness of the message of the gospel. And when they did, they did receive the Holy Spirit. That's the best attempt I'm going to give you. There's probably like an entire uh, professor's, you know, seminary class on that topic, but a couple of good commentaries should point you in the right direction there. And if you have other questions, do feel free to email me, graham at gracetoronto.ca. Would you please rise if you're able and join us in our song of response today?